I do want you to connect with this morning's message. The subject is worship. And we're not going to cover every aspect and nuance of worship, but I want you to observe both David in worship, and I want you to observe those that did not worship, though they were present. I want you to observe this morning as we are going from the life, going through the life of David from the sheep pen where he was chosen by Samuel to be the next king after the first king, Saul. We're, we're seeing him from being chosen, not because he was the brightest and the best, the strongest, the best looking. That was all Saul. But because he was a man after God's own heart. David is going to be found to be the king that God has designed for Israel. A man of his own choosing. This morning, we're going to, we have ended with Danny preaching last week. We have ended David's rising from a shepherd boy to the point now of reigning as a king. And his first action is to move the ark from far away Judah to his hometown, Jerusalem, which will become David's city. It will become the throne of Jerusalem will be where they will rule out of Zion. So what he is communicating is, is that my reign will be different. Now that I've risen and now that I have been set aside and anointed the true king of Israel... I will reign in the same place that I worship. And out of our worship will come my rule. And out of your worship will come your allegiance to the holy city. And what's taking place is, the big idea is that God is becoming, again, the true king over Israel. Now, in this section of Scripture, I want you to see, as we look at worship, I want you to see three things. I want you to see, first of all, the occasion for their worship. And then I want you to see the obstacles or those, those encumbrances that make it difficult to worship. And then lastly, I want to talk very practically about two rivers and the vision that I and Others, the elders, the shepherds have for the opportunity to worship as a worshiper like David at Two Rivers. So without further ado, let's look at the scripture. You should find it. Uh, I know that it's a long chapter. It's in the, uh, we've given it to you in a sermon outline. I highly recommend a, your own Bible. I preach from the English Standard Version, the ESV. Um, we, we've got copies available. If you don't own a Bible, please not only avail yourself, use one for worship, because we are people of God's Word. We're people of the Word. Uh, we study. We ask questions. We, we begin to ruminate. We connect the dots. This is God speaking to us. It's important for our life as well as our worship. But if you don't own a Bible, 
not only use it on Sunday morning, take it home with you. It's our, it's our gift to you. We want you to have, as a personal worshiper, your own personal copy. So, without further ado, let's look at 2 Samuel chapter 6. David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000, and David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baal Judah to bring up from there the ark of God. Now, let's stop here a second. Baal Judah is in Judah. It's also known, and you probably, if you've got a Bible, you probably will have a footnote to say that it's also Kiriath Jerem. And what it means is two things. Kiriath Jerem means city of the woods. So it's like saying Woodville. But it's on the, the, the outskirts of Judah. It's the land of Israel, but it's on the outskirts. It's in the boonies, and that's where the ark is. Years ago, almost 70 years ago, approaching a century of 100 years, 70 years ago, the ark was taken by the uncircumcised Philistines, pagans, idolaters, God-haters. The ark was taken in battle. Because the ark was trotted out like a magic box and they took it in battle and then they began to pass it around. They would look in it and they would die. Or they would take it into their own temple and their idol would fall down in front of it and its head fell off. Then they would say, we've got to get rid of this. They would send it to another Philistine city. Boils would break out. Rats would infest the city. That city would say, thank you for the favor but we're now going to send it to the next city. And they would go, no, don't send the ark here. And finally they said, let's put it on a cart with oxen. Now, I grew up on a small cattle farm, and I've always been amazed that the oxen that they used, the animal that they used, was a cow with a new calf. And they sent that cow that had a new calf. That cow was the engine for this cart. And so I can tell you, if you try to herd a cow with a new calf away from the calf, it doesn't work so well. It wants to go back to its baby. But it says that in this situation, that cow went bellowing all the way, carrying that ark from the pagans back home. Kiriath Jerem, where a man by the name of Abinadab took it into its home, and there it rested quietly. No one looked in it. No one disturbed it. Nobody sold tickets to see it. But David knew where it was. And now that he's got, now that he's been, he is the king, he's saying, I will not rest until I get the ark, this, this ark, back to Jerusalem. And so, verse 3, or excuse me, the middle of verse 2, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. And they carried the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, 
which was on the hill, and Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Amenadab, were driving the new cart with the ark of God, and Ahio went before the ark. Okay, can we talk about the ark for just a minute? The ark coming back, the ark is the occasion that's drawing David out in worship. It's the ark. Do we have a, can we get the slide up going on for the ark? The ark contained three things. The ark was a four-foot box, approximately four foot, and it was about two foot deep. It was made out of a particular kind of wood that was plated with gold, and the top was complete solid gold. And it had cherubim, or angels. Don't think about cherubs, but it had cherubim on top. And those angels on top formed a kind of seat that was known as the mercy seat. And that was where the presence of God abided. That was where God sat. He didn't sit in the condemnation seat. He didn't sit himself in the judge's seat. He sat in the mercy seat. And it was from there that the people looked to God through the medium of bloody sacrifices to give them mercy, forgiveness, life, direction, protection, to intercede for them, to be their God. And in the ark were three things. First of all, there were the stone tablets or the Ten Commandments from Moses. Secondly, there was a jar of manna. When they had been in the wilderness during those 40 years of wandering, we're told, wondering that we're told that every morning they were able to get up and collect manna, beanie wafers as it were. They could, they could make bread out of it, they could make donuts out of it, they could make all sorts of everything that we could use to make out of flour, they could grind it up, or they could just eat it ready to go. But it provided not only sweet substance, but, but protein. It, it fed them for 40 years. He provided bread for them to eat. Supernaturally, every day he fed them. All they had to do was to go out and get it. But then there was a third thing. It was Aaron's budding rod. And you can read about this in Numbers 17 and 18 on your own. But there was a dispute in Israel about who's the leader. Who stands before God and represents us? I want, I want my tribe, I want them to pick a man that stands before God to represent my tribe's interest before God. And so God instructed Moses and Aaron. He said, from each of the 12 tribes, get a rod or a staff and put it inside of the tabernacle or the church, the house of worship. Put a 13th staff there, and it will represent the tribe of Levi, the tribe that doesn't get an inheritance, the tribe that the tithe will provide for them. They're the preachers, the priests. Put Aaron's name on that. And out of all of those in the morning, the one that is budded 
that will be the one that will represent all the people before God. And God will speak to him from the Holy of Holies. And it was Aaron's bud in the morning that not only had buds on it, but it actually had almonds that you could eat that had come from it. And it said, basically, if you fast forward, Israel will have a holy, anointed man who is consecrated to represent and intercede for the people before God and represent God before the people. Christ. A representative. A figure of Christ. And he says, it'll be Aaron. So you could look at this box. You couldn't open it up. But you could look at this ark and you could say there are three things inside of it. They all come from heaven. God's will and pleasure and direction, the Ten Commandments, God's provision and sustenance, the bread, and God's representation, God's being with us, His knowing our needs, knowing our our wants, and ministering to us very personally. Now, all that in verse 5, And David and all the house of Israel were making merry before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. So we have here in 2 Samuel 6, verse 5, after all of these years of neglect, with the ark coming back, they spared no expense of castanets and cymbals, and some believe that they literally, as they went to Woodville, they made instruments. There's a footnote for where it says they made merry before the Lord with songs. That actually means instruments of fur, that they actually made lutes or flutes or other things. Alexander McLaurin, the Scottish minister, said this, The rejoicing crowd shows the effect that the consciousness of God's presence should ever have. God's felt nearness produces joy. In other words, when I am fully present, when I am conscious, when I am paying attention and become aware of the presence of God, when I feel His presence, sense His nearness, the the production, the fruit, will always be worship. It will be joy. It will be song. It will be praise. That's the occasion that David is finding to worship. It says that in verse 5, please underline this in your Bible, that he made Mary before the Lord. Before the Lord. That means that he doesn't look to this ark to be some magic box or some sacred object like a an, an idol of wood or stone. He is looking to that mercy seat and he's saying, 
The Lord is here. That's what I'm worshiping with. The Lord is here. He is already here. He's been there. Now we're bringing him back in, as it were. And so now I'm worshiping before the Lord. I'm not worshiping before a box. But this ark represents the presence of the Lord with David. And it represents the presence of the Lord with his people. And it will represent the presence of the Lord in his holy city, Zion, in Jerusalem. And that is cause for worship. So, in 2 Samuel, verse, chapter 6, verse 21, if you would go forward, Michael has already mocked David's worship and ridiculed him. And David gives her this rebuttal. It was before the Lord. It was conscious of his presence. It was an awareness of his nearness. Who chose me above your father and above all his house to appoint me as prince over Israel, the people of the Lord, and I will make merry before the Lord. Now he has just said a couple of things. He said, number one, I worship the Lord. I responded. The occasion for worship is because it was before the Lord. It was, I was aware and conscious of the presence of the Lord with me. Number two, I was aware and conscious that he chose me and not your house. He showed a grace and a provision and a mercy, a promised destiny, a life that I would have never had apart from him. Charles Spurgeon preaches a sermon on this one text. You'd be hard-pressed to ever use Spurgeon alone to preach a full sermon out of a whole chapter. He takes one verse and he just chews it fine. But on this one verse, he said, David has the greatest cause to worship God because of his election. That's a theological term to mean that out of God's mercy, he said, I'm going to love you. I'm not going to love you because you're good now or because you'll be good in the future. You won't. I'm going to love you because I'm going to love you. I choose to love you, and I'm going to have David a steadfast love, one of his favorite terms in his psalms that he writes. I am not going to quit. Your own sin will not cause me to quit loving you. Is that a cause for worship? David says, lastly there, he says, I'm a prince over Israel. Why didn't he say king? Isn't he the king? You might recall that, that God was upset and Samuel was upset, the prophet, when he went to God and said, you know what these people want? These people who have never had a king and you've always been the God, you've provided for them manna, you've provided for them direction, you've provided for them uh, commands and directions set them apart as a holy people. You've loved them, not because they were worthy of love, but you just put your love upon them, and now they want a king. And he says, I'll give them a king. They're not going to like it. But I'm going to give them a king if they want a king. But what God really wanted was he wanted to be king. What he wants is a prince. And that's what he's got in David. 
And that's what David says. David doesn't say, I am King David, bow down to me. He doesn't say, I'm a king like Saul. He says, I'm in the position of a king, and you may call me king, but in my eyes, and particularly in my worship, I'm but a servant. I'm not the center. I'm not the one who is most important. He is the king. It is his throne that I serve. And yet, he has raised me as greater than a servant, but to be a crown prince of heaven. Such is our salvation for you if you unpack the gospel. That God has come to us, unworthy that we are, and he has shown to us a steadfast love and mercy, forgiveness of our sins. And now he doesn't simply call us servants or even friends. He calls us sons and he calls us daughters. I want to invite uh, Justin to come up. Justin is our worship leader. And before I talk any further about the obstacles and get very, very practical, I want, I asked Justin, Justin is our worship leader, and he, he has a, a huge heart for us to be very vigilant to worship and to have, as it were, the, the heart of David. And so I've asked Justin to just give us a few words and to, to talk to us about how do we get there? How do we worship? What, is it, what does it look like? Justin? They let me speak every now and then, which is fun. Um, I'm really grateful that I'm able to share about worship. I'm glad that Phil asked me to talk. Um, Worship is a passion of mine. That's what my vocation is. Um, And I I love being a worship leader because it's where the theology that we learn and grow in from the Bible meets the practical corporate worship on Sunday mornings. We take communion. We sing songs. We lay out chairs. we, We stand up. We sit down. Those are all things that are practical but have theological uh, motivations for them. Um, so spirit and truth is how we attempt to worship in this service. So what does that look like? If you go to John 14, this is Jesus talking to the woman at the well, and she's wanting to talk about, well, I worship here, you worship there, which is the best place? And Jesus cuts through that, and he tells her, he says, you know, or you worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. So that's what we try to do. We take, we take truth, which is, which is Christ, in, in the word, in, in our scriptures, the good news. We take that truth, we take that knowledge... And we use it to worship in truth, but also in spirit. We have the Holy Spirit dwelling in us, so our spirits can reflect praise as well. So I'm using the words uh, spirit to talk about the heart and truth to talk about head knowledge. Um, We have to have both and, not just one or the other. And it comes first into our minds and then into our hearts. It can't ever work the other way around. And to give you an example, last year when I found out that my wife was pregnant... That knowledge made my spirit change, obviously. Um, it, it changed me because of my relationship and intimate knowledge with my wife. My emotions were affected by that. If I'm standing in the line at Publix and I hear someone say that they're pregnant, 
I'll say congratulations, I'll be happy, but it's not going to affect my emotions because the truth isn't there, the knowledge isn't there. So we first seek to know God and secondly worship him through our emotions in light of that knowledge. Um, So this has been very helpful for me. Um, I learned this a few years ago. Two goals of worship. So having said that with head and heart, we have two primary goals of worship. One is the glorification of God, which I think we would all um, agree to. But the second one, which I think is is very uh, equally important, actually, is the edification of the church. And they're not really exclusive. The edification of the church is the glorification of God, and glorifying God is edifying his people. But this is why uh, this is why we sing and pray out loud and not in our minds, because we are singing to encourage those around us. This is why we don't turn all the lights off, so we can see one another. Um, this is why we um, all come forward and take communion together. This is why we pass the peace to one another, because we glorify God, but we also encourage one another um, in worship and towards God. So churches can, can lean on either side of that spectrum. Churches, um, very often Presbyterian churches, can be very cerebral and very biblical. And what I mean by that is they have a lot of knowledge. They have a lot of head knowledge. And it's like people standing on a dock with a map. They know exactly where they want to go, but they don't have a ship. You have all the knowledge you need. That's not going to get you where you want to go. Um, Conversely, a very emotionally expressive church that kind of demeans theology, or not demeans it, but um, minimizes theology, Um, they're like a ship without a map. And so they drift wherever the wind and the currents take them. But that energy and that, that emotion and spirit is not driving them to the goal of authentic worship. Um, and Jonathan Edwards is, has a great quote here uh, from A Divine and Supernatural Light. He says, There is a difference between having an opinion that God is holy and gracious and having a sense of the loveliness and beauty of that holiness and grace. There's a difference between having a rational judgment or understanding that honey is sweet and having a sense of its sweetness. A man may have the former that knows not how honey tastes, but a man cannot have the latter unless he has an idea of the taste of honey in his mind. So we are called to taste and see that the Lord is good, and we do that by understanding who he is in our truth and in our minds, and that should appropriately come out in our emotions in worship. So that's my challenge to you guys today as we look at Second Samuel, is what does proper worship look like? And it is in spirit and in truth. So let's look back at verse 6. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down there because of his era, and he died there beside the ark of God. And David was angry because the Lord had burst forth against Uzzah, And that place is called Perez Uzzah to this day. And David was afraid of the Lord that day, and he said, How can the ark of the Lord come to me? So David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David. But David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. Eugene Peterson says this about the attitude the frame of mind, the consciousness that we should be bringing into the worship service. 
Sometimes I think that all religious sites should be posted with signs that read, Beware the God. The places and occasions that people gather to attend to God are dangerous. They're glorious places and occasions, true, but they're also dangerous. Danger signs should be conspicuously placed as they are at nuclear power stations. Religion is the death of some people. Charles Spurgeon, famous prince of preachers, said this, Those who handle sacred things the most are the most apt to profane them. Uzzah had become very familiar with this piece of furniture, the ark. You might have missed it, but if you go back to verse 3, it tells us that there were two brothers, Uzzah and Ohio, and they were the son of Aminadab. And Abinadab was where the ark had been residing for so very, very long. It was Uzzah's house growing up that this piece of furniture, neglected, kept safe, would have been year after year after year, collecting dust. They didn't touch it. But we can only imagine that Uzzah, as his actions demonstrate, had become very familiar. Something that was very, very sacred had become very, very common. And now Uzzan is the the wagon master. He's on the wagon. He's steering the oxen. His brother is right beside the, the cart. They're getting very, very close to a stopping point. The oxen stumble. The cart bobbles. The ark, it appears to Uzzah, is in danger of toppling out. And he does what I believe he thinks is a very good and God-honoring thing. He sticks out his hand to stop it. And he gets a jolt. He dies on the spot. Indiana Jones was, would be a good consultant for Uzzah. Having done his research, Indiana Jones could say, Well, you know, you don't touch the ark with human hands. You need Levites, priests. You take poles and you run it along the the rings that that are made there in the ark and you bear the ark. Down in verse 13, it says the second time when they moved the ark after David got over his brooding when he saw that the house of Obed-Edom was richly blessed. Let's take that up, verse 11. And the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite three months. And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. And it was told King David, The Lord has blessed the house of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. Verse 13. And when those who bore the ark of the Lord, now they're carrying it on their shoulders, now they're carrying it properly, not 
touching, not laying hands in familiarity upon God. The ark of the Lord had gone six steps. He sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal. And David danced before the Lord with all of his might. And David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn. Uzzah had become very familiar with worship. It was boring. R.C. Sproul says, if worship is boring to you, if worship is boring to you, it's because you're a boring person. The boredom is with yourself. A preoccupation with yourself will make you bored. You're not that great. You're not that special. The narcissist, you may think that the narcissist, though he is very self-centered and she is all about herself being at the center, they find in a very short amount of time that they're incredibly bored with themselves and they need to add something else to it. Narcissus Sproul said, God is not boring. If you are conscious of the presence of God, you won't be bored. Case in point, God is a consuming fire. God is bigger than you, bigger than me, bigger than this world that he made, bigger than the billions and billions of stars and planets that he made. God is beyond our complete comprehension. God is beyond our control. We will not control God in worship. And to the degree that you control God in worship, your worship will die. Because you're going to get a God about that big because that's about all you can control. That's all I can control. I start putting Jesus Christ through a makeover. I don't like it. Jesus, I don't like it when you do this. I don't like it when you do this. And you're saying, pick up my cross, follow you. You're saying, die to myself. You're saying, love my enemy. You're saying, forgive debts. I'm owed that. I don't like that. So I begin to do a makeover, and my worship becomes very boring. And spiritually, I begin to die. Do you believe that? But I'm going to tell you, to the degree that God grows awesome, that means wide-eyed when you see something. Oh! to the degree that God grows awesome. David got angry because his plan for the day is literally off the tracks. It's off. But God doesn't judge him in his anger. It, it, it sobered up the worship service, but he's going to come back, particularly as he sees that ark, God's presence, go into a home and bless it, and bless it. It blessed the mommy, it blessed the daddy, it blessed the little baby, it blessed the little child. I believe it would radiate out that in that home they were worshiping that ark. They were worshiping God of the ark. They would look at that and they would say, this is the ark of the covenant, which means it's the ark that just to look at it reminds me that God has made a promise, like a wedding vow, to always be mine, to always be our God. And they could talk about it, and I believe it blessed the neighborhood. And David said, you know what? I want some of that worship. I want that kind of blessing. We, we just can't keep it in one person's house or, or home. We've got to get it into the city so that other people can properly worship this awesome God. 
not without over-familiar attitude, not trying to control him, that we might have that blessing. But there was somebody else, and that was Michael. We read about her in verse 16 as the ark did now come into the city of David. Michael, the daughter of Saul, looked out of the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord. And she despised him in her heart. You can skip down. Verse 20. And David returned to bless his household. Now, he has been out, and he's been taking the ark around, and then he sees that the ark is established. The ark is now returned. And he is, his life from worship, as ours should be, is different. He doesn't just worship on a Sunday morning or worship on an occasion and then go off and be the same. Charles Spurgeon was asked in uh, the College of Preachers, they said, um, you know, you're such a dramatic preacher. Can you give us so many pointers? And he says, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. He said, when you... When you preach, I want you to think about the promise of heaven. I want you to think about the deep, deep forgiveness of your sins. I want you to become conscious of the love of God. And as you begin to think about that in life, eternity, life and eternal as a worshiper for all eternity, of God who is your Father, your face will just light up. And then when you preach about hell, well, just use your Monday face. That'll do. There's a difference. We should, because we're not just doing it out of custom or the familiar, but like David, we should come from this Sunday morning to Rivers, and our response to worship should continue. Being in the presence of God, conscious of His abiding steadfast love for me, conscious no longer with me at the center, but him at the center, that will affect how I deal in relationship and community with anyone that crosses my path. So David goes home, and he, he is, he's lit up from worship. And here is Michael. How the king of Israel honored himself today, uncovering himself today before the eyes of his servants, Female servants, as one of the vulgar fellows, shamelessly uncovers himself. I had read to you earlier his defense or his rebuttal in verse 21. Verse 22, he says, I will make myself yet more contemptible than this, and I will be abased in your eyes. But by the female servants of whom you have spoken, by them I shall be held in honor. And Michael, the daughter of Saul, what was the effect of her life? had no child to the day of her death. There was no fruit in her life. She was barren, no, no production. She was nothing, no significance in life, no real identity, no fulfillment, certainly. What was Michael doing? Michael was mocking out of her pride. Michael, if you recall, she was a princess. She was the reward to the one that would slay Goliath. The men were talking in the camp. Have you not heard, David, what will be done for the man that slays Goliath? Saul, the king, will give his beautiful, radiant, wealthy princess, Michael, hand in marriage to the one that slays Goliath. Well, 
Saul eventually, reluctantly, to this ruddy-faced, commoner, shepherd boy, gave Michael's hand in marriage. And they were wed. But Michael is looking at him and she's saying, you don't act like a king. I look at you in your worship and you look, you don't have any sense of yourself. You've lost yourself completely. And he says, it was before the Lord that I worshiped. It was before the Lord that I made Mary. It wasn't to the appearance of other people. It wasn't about my status. That wasn't why I went to church. She's saying, the church is a great opportunity to put yourself forward as how good you are, how strong you are, how special you are. And he says, no, it's not. It's a place where I come and I am humbled that God should put his love upon me. She looks at worship and she says, you should carry yourself royally. He says, no, I meet God in all humility when I come before him and I totally, totally lose preoccupation with what I wear, with who I am, with my status, I no longer am preoccupied with myself as a center. Well, this morning, I want to tell you that there's two opportunities for us in application to what you've heard to worship. The first is private or personal, and it's organic. And it looks something like this. I set aside a place. I set aside a place that I can first pray. And my prayer will, my prayer for the place that I worship each morning, my prayer before I read, before God talks to me from His Word, I pray this. Lord, I, I need You. Lord, i got a lot that I'm facing today. Help me not to think about that. Help me to lose myself and dwell and think only of you. Lord, let me see you in what I read. Let me hear you in what I read. Please preserve this time from any other distraction, particularly the distraction of myself. And I'm going to tell you, just like pirates always look for ships that are a little bit low in the water, pirates look for loaded ships to board and rob. They don't look for empty ships. I could tell you that that's when the cat's going to get his tail caught at the door, the phone's going to ring. Oh, I remember this something. i got to go do that. I'll come back to that. There's always a Michael that can kind of, right when you're trying to worship, defuse it. But then after reading, then I then have a time that I can pray and also praise. And you can start differently. You can start with praise and then read God's Word and then pray. Or you can start with a prayer, as I do, because I've got to get my distractions under control first. I've got a website. Now this is, you may have a devotional guide or plan, but I want to recommend to you www 
dailyprayers.us. And it will begin, it will, it's for each day of the week. And just reserve, start with 15 minutes. And you'll start with a prayer. Then it will give you a video clip of a song. Listen to the song. It'll give you the lyrics. You can sing along with the song. Then it will give you some suggested prayers. Sometimes I need my pump to be primed. And so I will, I will adopt that as my prayer for that morning. Then it will give you a suggested scripture to read, and it'll print it out for you. And then it'll give you a little commentary, some, some thoughts about that scripture. Our personal worship at Two Rivers is on you. It's organic. It's personal between you and God. Please don't let anything keep you from it. We're not going to be, the shepherds are not going to poll you or call you this week and say, did you have your quiet time? Are you, what does your personal worship look like? What's your devotional life look like? But they sure do pray and they want to encourage it. God wants your personal worship. But secondly, there is public and corporate worship, organized worship. This, this morning, my vision for Two Rivers is found in Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 28. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom. Remember, not your daddy's house. My daddy's house has been blessed. Not your dad and his offspring, but God has called me to be a son or a daughter. God has called me to be a prince or a princess. And I'm grateful for receiving that kingdom. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Not even my sin. This is what election says. Not even my sin can keep me from God because God will not be kept back from that. He will continue to come through the Spirit and work on my heart to bring me back. It's like that ark saying, you'll always be my people. It can't be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Do you see that? Reverence, that's the truth. Awe, that's the Spirit. Uzzah, Uzzah lacked. Jesus Christ told the woman, the Father seeks worshipers, worshipers that will worship him in spirit and truth. Uzzah lacked a balance of the truth. God had become very common. He was bored with God. He got a wild refresher, everybody else did too, of who God really is, this God that we worship. All, all was increased. Michael, not the right spirit. Not the right spirit. She couldn't worship in spirit because she was so preoccupied with status, with look, with herself, with her life. And reading that into David. Reverence at two rivers. Reverence. We worship with informed minds as to who God is, but also awe. We worship with spirits of flame. We worship like David before God, who we see and we know and we make our boast in. Let's pray. Father, the closest thing that I can think of to that ark 
is this table. This table is not magic, but all who look to this table and see the presence of Jesus Christ will be blessed. And they see the promises of his steadfast blood as his broken body and shed blood on our behalf is communicated. When we see that at this table, we will respond in worship. We will no longer worship ourselves because we will realize that we are coming forward to this table in the presence of God and you are serving us with yourself. You are laying down your life, as it were, again for us. And that prompts us to be fully present, fully conscious, and we rejoice. We come to this table and we ask for forgiveness of pride. We come to this table humble that you should call us sons and daughters and invite us to come and feast with you. But we also ask that you would forgive us for just taking worship as such a common thing. It's so ordinary. Oh, Lord. You have been with us this day, and you have much to say to us. And we have heard, and our response is Christ alone. Our response is worship. Our response is that we would participate once again in this table, in the very act of worship, by taking Christ again for ourselves. So, Father, strengthen us from this table. Strengthen our worship as we pray in Christ's name. Amen.